Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will, re- he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I'm going to read John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not believe or understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of the living God, now be our teacher, be the one who translates the living and active uh, word of God to our hearts so that we would leave Uh, this place having encountered you. It's already happened, and we thank you for it. And we pray simply that you would continue to speak and to say what we need to hear today. Give us your words of life. In Jesus' name, amen. How are you doing so far? Okay, I'll take it. That's good. That's a good start. Uh, The the summer after my freshman year of college, I went on a three-week wilderness backpacking trip, and uh, it was part of the college that I was attending, and um, three weeks in the wilderness of western North Carolina, and much about that trip was exactly how I thought it would be. It was beautiful, uh, it was hard, it was a bonding experience with the other people who were on that trip, as you can imagine, spending uh, three weeks in the woods with about eight other people, but there were some things that were surprising to me, and, and, and maybe the most surprising was how hungry I was the entire three weeks. It's not that we didn't have food. We, we had food. It's just that we were very active. We hiked many miles every day. 
uh, with our backpacks on, went rock climbing, canoeing, and so we just we, we were physically tired, and you can only carry so much food on your back, and so you never felt. I never felt full during those three weeks. We would sit down and eat and be ready to eat some more, but that was all the food that we uh, had uh, to eat. And so um, I had thought we might have these deep philosophical conversations under the stars. Really, all we ever talked about was food, was food. <laughs> and uh, sort of how hungry we were, and when we got back to civilization, what meals we were going to cook, and what, what my mom's favorite food was for me, and what your mom's favorite meal was for you. And th- th- these were the, 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 the extent of our deep conversations during these three weeks. We, we also felt kind of an anxiety about food because we were only resupplied a few times during this trip, and so we had to ration out our food. We had to make sure that we didn't eat too much early on so that we wouldn't be without food toward the end of our trip. And so food was always on our mind because we were hungry. Of course, many people in our world and, and in our city know that feeling of being hungry but with no expiration date on it. I was not going to be hungry after three weeks. We went to the old country buffet after that trip was over and gorged ourselves on good southern cooking. Uh, but for many people in our world, hunger is kind of an ongoing thing, and that anxiety that comes along with being hungry is a very real presence on a regular basis. Some of you know that. You've experienced that in your lives. The first passage that one read for us this morning from the Old Testament book of Isaiah was directed to a people who knew hunger. Isaiah wrote in the 8th century to a nation, the nation of Israel, that had been divided, torn in two, and now was besieged by Assyria. Assyria was the great empire, the superpower of their day. They had surrounded different cities in Judah, had cut them off in many cases from their food supplies. This was a a violent, a ruthless nation with tactics we might consider terrorist-like in our day. People knew what it was like to be hungry. Isaiah was writing to a people who were in crisis. And, and in moments of crisis, it's human nature to ask big questions about the nature of things, about our own sustainability, about what God is like and what God will or will not do for us. And the people were asking these kinds of questions of their God. And in our passage from Isaiah, God responds. God is answering the, the deep and, uh, and profound questions that these people were asking during their moments of crises. And depending on how the people heard God's answers was going to determine whether they would place their trust in God or whether they would trust themselves for their future. How we hear God's answers to these questions determines, I think, whether we place our trust in God or whether we place our trust in ourselves, in our methods and means and skills. And so in verse 6, Isaiah writes, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. The people are asking different questions. They're asking, will our needs be met? Will our enemies be defeated? Will our shame be removed? Among other questions, these were three questions that they came back to again and again. Will our needs be met? Will our enemies be defeated? Will our shame be removed? And to this first question, will our needs be met? The answer seems pretty clear. Yes, with a great feast. The 
promise for a hungry people is that God would feed them and feed them well. But notice that this is not a one-time meal. The imagery here, in fact, is for a newly coronated king who's throwing a great banquet, a great feast for his subjects, for his people. This is a feast for a king. Notice as well the move from particularity to universality, from this mountain to all peoples. Will our needs be met? The answer is yes. But how God will do this is what is interesting, what would have caught the people's attention. Isaiah says a divine king is coming who will rule the world justly and with righteousness who will satisfy every one of his people's needs. This is how God will meet his people's needs through this divine king coming to rule with justice and righteousness. In verse 7, Isaiah goes on, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The second question is, will our enemies be defeated? Here the answer isn't quite so obvious. Remember, it was Assyria who was Judah's greatest enemy. They were the ones who were knocking at the door, threatening to overcome this small nation. The people were afraid of Assyria, and rightly so. They had a reputation. And without going into great detail on this festive Sunday, we'll leave it at one example. This was a nation who was known to dismember its victims while they were still alive as a threat to other nations. Israel knew this, and they feared them. But the thing is, there's no mention of Assyria in our passage. Instead, the image that Isaiah uses is of all people being enshrouded as with a sheet with death. Death, according to Isaiah, is humanity's true enemy. The ancient Near East was was full of, of gods, legends, and mythologies, and language about different gods. Now, one of these gods was known as the god of death, another as the god of life, and many of the, 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 the legends and mythology was built around the battles between these two gods. And, and often the language was that the god of death would swallow the god of life. This is generally how the legends ended, with death winning, with life being swallowed by death, which makes sense. All evidence around the people in those days, and perhaps around us in our day, points in that direction, that no matter what we do, at the end of the day, death swallows life. This is the final enemy, the enemy that is common to all of humanity across place and time, death. But Isaiah says that Israel's God will not be swallowed by death. The so-called natural order will be reversed. God, the creator of all life, will swallow death. Here's the thing. God is not content to defeat your temporary enemies, be they Assyria or a terrorist group, a gang, a political party, the other political party than whoever your political party happens to be your boss, whoever is the enemy of the day, God's not content to defeat our temporary enemies. 
You see, from the perspective of the God who exists outside of time, every one of these enemies is a temporary pawn. Their destructive capacity is absolutely real. You have experienced it. But defeating any one of them simply opens up space for the next enemy to take its place. And so we gloat over the the death of one terrorist leader, only to be shocked when another terrorist group fills the void. We celebrate the presidential victory of our candidate, only to be let down when his policies are warped by the same corrupt system as the last guy. We breathe a sigh of relief when the vicious employee is finally fired, only to find that his replacement is destructive just in different ways. And on and on it goes. In the attempt to defeat and destroy our enemies, you and I simply discover or we make new enemies. We have a long and unimaginative history when it comes to resolving our issues and our conflict and defeating our enemies. So will our enemies be defeated? Well, the answer is yes, Isaiah says, but it comes by freeing us from our mortal enemy, death. You see, if death no longer has power over us, then none of our lesser enemies can hold power over us either. When death is defeated, every other enemy is but a shadow of itself. With death defeated, every other enemy, be it deception or suffering, holds no ultimate power over us, no claim over our identity. Once you no longer fear death, every anxiety-producing circumstance shrinks to its rightful size. Every deceptive and debilitating memory becomes ground for redemption. The lies and the fear mongers in your ear are exposed and can be discarded. Because once you no longer fear death, even Assyria loses its power to terrorize. Are you with me? And so we move on. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The third question is, will our shame be removed? You see, Israel's needs could be met. Their enemies could be defeated. But that left the shame of their sin. Despite having been rescued from slavery generations Earlier, in order to show God's blessing to the world, Israel had succumbed to the predictable concerns of their neighbors, concerns that led to violence, division, nationalism, and idolatry. Generations of prophets had warned of the consequences of choosing the world's methods and the world's sources of legitimacy. Israel had chosen to play the might-makes-right game, and like everybody always eventually does, they lost. And now they face these consequences, knowing that it hadn't been God's intention, knowing that it didn't have to be this way. They had rejected their rescuer God, and the shame of their decision cut to the core of their identity. But Isaiah says, even This is not too much for God. Isaiah says tears and disgrace will only 
be a memory one day. Those who accept God's rescue will find their shame not simply covered up or lessened by degree. They will find that their shame is utterly removed from the earth. So Isaiah says God will meet not just our physical needs. God will not only defeat our enemy. He will heal the places of deepest regret and failure and shame. He will take away our sin. And then this, the Lord has spoken. This is the king's seal of approval. This is his uh, his check saying, you can take this to the bank. It is as good as done. It's a definitive statement. And so to a, a besieged people, God's answers to every one of their questions has been yes, a resounding yes. I will do these things for you. Will our needs be met? Yes. Will our enemies be defeated? Yes. Will our shame be removed? Yes. These are God's promises to his people then, and they are his promises to you today. To which some of the people then and some of the honest people in the room today might reply, really? Hear these things and God's promises and we look around us and it all seems a bit unlikely. In a world of countless profound needs, in a world of many violent and unrelenting enemies, in a world of countless secret and debilitating shames, God's promises might sound hollow, empty. Besieged and hungry people can be forgiven for doubting God's promises. It's all rather unlikely. And yet, if there is a God, then you and I had better get used to the unlikely. Because when we speak of God, when we talk about God, we're not simply talking about a bigger and a better version of our ideal self. We are talking about someone else entirely different. Philosopher David Bentley Hart puts it this way. He says, beliefs regarding God concern the source and ground and end of all reality, the unity and existence of every particular thing, and the totality of all things, the ground of the possibility of anything at all. The ground. I promise you this is the last time. <laughs> Not Brent's fault at all. This is what the philosopher says that when we're talking about God, we are talking about the possibility of any. Thing at all. And so this morning, on Easter morning, before we disregard God's unlikely promises, consider for a moment how well the predictable and normal and rational prob- uh, promises of this world have been working for you so far. How well have the normal, predictable promises of our world been working for our world so far? Is it at least Possible this morning that the problem isn't with God's promises being too good, but with our imaginations being too small. 
Later on in Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Thanks be to God that this is true. It has to be true. Again, if we're talking about God, God's ways, his thoughts have to be different and higher and and distinct from our own. But what does it mean? How does this work? We actually caught a glimpse of it in verse 6 of our passage. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Uh, uh, Another and maybe closer translation here would be, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of fatness for all peoples. I don't know if that sounds good to you or not. If you are somebody who likes a good steak, it probably sounds good to you. You know you want the marbling to be just right. Yes, yes, yes. A feast of fat to a hungry people who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. The the fattest portion of the animal was the best portion. And some of you may remember that in in ancient Israel, the, the fattest portion of the animal was given to God as the sacrifice, a way of the people saying, we give our best to God. We give our first to God. The fat offering was given. But notice in this passage, who's giving the fat offering to whom? The fat offering was meant to be for God. It was the best. But here, God sits the people down to a banqueting table and he says, I am going to give it to you. I am going to feed you with the best. How will God meet our needs? How will God defeat our enemy? How will God vanquish our shame? Isaiah can only hint at it from this vantage point of history, but the vision here is for a day when God's promises are fulfilled when God gives himself away for our salvation. Healing and salvation will never come from our own efforts. We know this if we are honest. No, our rescue comes when God takes on to himself our hunger, our shame, and our death. Our rescue comes when God takes our pitiful attempts at sacrificing for him and instead becomes the sacrifice. Our rescue comes when God takes your token religiosity and our occasional piety that we offer him and replaces it with a great and extravagant feast where we are the guests and he is the host, the servant even. Our rescue comes in a great reversal when the Son of God submits to the cross. He hangs there thirsty and shameful and dying. He takes on to himself our hunger, our shame, and our death. And here, unexpectedly, our deepest needs are met. Our greatest enemy is defeated. And our shame is vanquished. Our rescue comes when we admit our inability to meet our own needs our inability to defeat our enemy, to vanquish our shame. Our rescue comes when we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has already done 
everything we never could do. Are you trusting this God? With such an unexpected rescue, such a a turn of events, Jesus' resurrection, the reason we celebrate this morning, can almost seem anticlimactic. If it were up to us, we'd have Jesus exploding from the tomb with the best of Hollywood special effects. Instead, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of every one of God's promises, quietly appears to Mary. And he sends her as the first messenger of God's great victory. Mary sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize him at first, but she does. And she trusts him. And then she goes, and she goes joyfully with the news that God has kept all of his promises. She experienced exactly what Isaiah hundreds of years before had said she was going to experience. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Is your trust and faith in this God? His promises are very, very good. And from most vantage points, they are, in fact, too good to be true. But from Mary's vantage point, in the quiet of the garden, at the mouth of the empty tomb, God's promises were not only good, they were actually true. And so she, like so many since then, placed her trust in a crucified God and a resurrected God. She, like so many since then, experienced the God who met her deepest needs, who defeated her greatest enemy, and who vanquished every source of her shame. Do you trust this God? Through Jesus, God has prepared a great feast for us. He has destroyed the enemy, death. Today, he stands ready again to wipe away every tear, to forgive every sin, to remove every source of shame. Let us trust in him. Let us rejoice in him. Let us be glad in his salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment to consider where your trust has been placed. As we pray, I'm going to ask that you, uh, for a second, just as honestly as you can, ask yourself, where have I placed my trust? What, who am I looking to for salvation? This morning, can I ask that if as you ask that question, you find that you are looking for your identity, for your hope, for your rescue, for your salvation, for your future in anything other than this God. Would you this morning consider placing all the trust you can muster in him, all of the faith that you can muster in him? For the first time, for the 100th time, the banqueting table is set for you. There is a God who wants to give you the best.
where have you placed your trust? And so this morning, Lord, as we come again to the reality of of this kind of a God, we need to be reminded of what you are like. There's no precedent for you. There's no precedent for a God who acts this way, who accomplishes salvation in this manner. So we need to be reminded again this morning of what is good and what is right and what is This morning, I want to pray that any of us who are coming again to the end of our trust in ourselves, to the end of our trust in that person, in that dream, in that career, in that attainment, in that definition of ourselves, would you welcome us again, Holy Spirit of the living God, to place all of the trust that we can muster in you and in you alone. Would you speak to us now about the ways you want to meet our needs, about what it would look like to live with no fear in this life, of how we can live as free and joyful people, not held back by secrets or by shame, knowing that in you we are seen and loved. So welcome this morning, our God, those of us who are placing our trust in you for the first time once again be found faithful we pray in Jesus name we pray amen amen